Welcome to Tech Ed Tech, a podcast about educational technology and project-based learning in the classroom. I'm Mike. And I'm Dan. We are here this week to talk about better projects in the classroom. So let's get to it. So this week, I had the opportunity to give a presentation to fellow staff members, and I thought, what could I present to other staff members that would be the most helpful or useful to them? And I realized that the most experience that I had was with projects. I realized really good at running projects in the class and doing so effectively. I came up with some tips, and I know you have some tips too, that we've done in the class to make projects go much smoother and make it come out better for not just the kids, but also for the teachers themselves. Absolutely. Um, one of the few things I am very comfortable calling myself an expert on is project-based learning. Uh, we do projects, our classes are project-based, and over the years, we've gotten pretty good at it. And, there, and in general education, in core classes, there's more of a push to integrate project-based learning into all subjects, so we felt like we had some advice we could share with everyone. So let's get started. All right, so these are tips that you could walk away with today, apply to your class. It's literally starting tomorrow and greatly improve and see significant improvements right out of the gate. So the first tip that I have is to actually build the project before you assign it. So most projects are creating something, building something, making a model, a structure, something that moves. And I always, always, always recommend Build it yourself first. Give yourself the same limitations, the same time frame, and build it. That way, as you do it, you're going to run across a lot of the problems that the kids will. And you may not find all of them, but you're going to realize as you're doing it, oh, this isn't going to work, or this might go better if I do it this other way than I expected. It's a good way to kind of troubleshoot before you get into it. Absolutely. I think a lot of times we make the mistake of thinking, well, we know how to do this. We know how to do X, Y, and Z. But when you actually try to execute it, a lot of times for me, it's trickier than I thought. Uh, you know, just recently I was trying to teach children how to sew some very basic stitches. And it's something I knew how to do, but I've never explained before. So talking it out and trying it myself really helped me communicate it with the students. If you run into a problem, trust me, middle school or high school age students or elementary age students for that matter will run into the same problems you did. All right, what was your first tip? Okay, my next tip, because this is something that I get a lot. If you hate groups, if one of the reasons you try to avoid projects in your class is because of all the trouble creating and maintaining the interpersonal relationships that having a group project creates, your best bet is just to minimize the group work as much as possible. It is possible. There, there are methods you could use to still have students collaborate, but not have it be a quote unquote group project. Because as soon as you say that to kids, it switches something in their minds. I found that once that pressure is gone, they kind of relax and say, okay, I could kind of deal with this a little bit better when they know that they're not going to fail because one of the four people in their group or three people in their group just isn't pulling their own weight. 
you're still going to have problems where kids just have a hard time working together because they don't always agree. And, you know, you get kids who always want to do it their way and have a hard time collaborating. But you could take a lot of that stress away for yourself and for them by grading them more on what they do as an individual than as a group. Now, you can't always avoid grading them as a group. But if you minimize that, make 80% of it the work that they do individually, like in a packet to show the thought process through the assignment and what they actually do together, like the last 20%, I think that's a much better way to minimize. Absolutely. I start, and I know you do too, I start every single assignment as an individual assignment. When I'm going over the assignment, when we're doing basic research and we're establishing some facts and some knowledge that hopefully the students will build upon as they get into their project-based learning, that is individual. And the kids will ask you every single day, is this a group project? What are my groups? What are my groups? And it's annoying, but I push them off. I said, right now we're working on our own. We're doing our research. We're going to take a quiz maybe, depending on the project. I start them off individually. And then after the project is rolling, I could form groups. I think sort of that little delay at least puts them a little bit into the right mindset. It puts a little bit of individual responsibility on every student. And it's a good way to start a uh, project, even if it's going to be a group-based problem-solving project. It's a great way to get them started. Yeah, and I always I, I put off until the absolute last moment that they need to know what their groups are to tell them. So that way they true treat it as an individual thing, especially for generating solutions. Because if they're working on it as a group generating solutions, you can bet that a lot of their solutions are going to look similar to their friends and it's going to minimize the amount of options. And there's all sorts of benefits you can get from it. Absolutely. And don't be afraid. I, and I know this isn't always possible with supplies and space and time, but don't be afraid to run it as an individual project. If you have 22 kids in a room brainstorming and uh, you know, developing work, there's going to be collaboration. I mean, that networking effect works. It's not like you have 22 kids sitting in silence. They could each work on their own project. And trust me, being in that room, seeing what other students are doing will really cause some of that cross-pollination all by itself. I understand that there are space and especially material limitations, but if groups have been a problem in the past, I think this is something every teacher could try to sort of make projects work a little bit more smoothly, especially at the middle school level where those interpersonal relationships can be really tricky in a classroom. If it's really not working out for you, we do projects without groups. It works fine. I do like to do both, but at the same time, if it doesn't work, then don't force it either. All right. For my next tip, I have the idea of grading more on the process than the actual performance of the project. We have a lot of process that goes into creating a project. There's a whole system called the design loop that we have the kids work through. There's portfolios and documentation that goes with it, which we highly recommend. And you could actually see some of that a little bit if you go to our website and check out some of the projects that are posted there. But most of the grade that they get for a project is what they do as an individual and how showing how they are working to complete the project. And regardless of whether it works or doesn't work, reflection on how it could have been better at the end. Because at the end of the day, that's what's most important is why did they do what they did and what did they actually gain from that process? 
So I'll actually minimize how their project actually performs. Sometimes I won't actually give them a grade on how their project performs. Yeah, I mean, they're going to be motivated to make their project work if it's you know some sort of moving object or perform well. Uh, the grade on that, honestly, is not a huge motivating factor. They have that motivation. Going back to what you were saying before, if you have an idea for a project, you have a goal in mind, but you don't yet have a process that you're going to use to get the kids there, go find a design process, find an iterative process that you could use with the students and start from there and make the students go through that process. They're not going to want to do it. If you've never done it before, you're going to have to spend time teaching the process. And it might seem like that's going to drag your project out forever, but it's, it's going to be worth it. Teach the kids the process, make them follow the process as closely as possible. Give them evaluations as the project is going forward, if possible. I mean, I'm not always the best at that, but ideally you'll be able to check their progress in the process and uh, recommend improvements or even just give them small evaluations so they have grades and they sort of know themselves how it's going. And I like to include some performance on the final grade. I think that's fair. It, It does sort of reward students who were mindful and built something well. A lot of times this is almost about how much care they took into making something as much as their idea, but it shouldn't be the majority of their grade. Um, And it really isn't the focus of any of our projects in class. Well said. All right, my next tip is, and this is a big one, and this is a hard one to overcome, especially if, if you're used to doing this another way. But do not give, if possible, do not give the kids an example of what the final project should or can look like. It is very hard for a young designer to come up with their own solutions to a problem if they see an example. They will almost automatically and subconsciously copy your example. It's actually remarkable. (laughs) Yeah, I've even gone as far as to show them an example that would be wrong, like almost like a failing example. Like if you do this, this will not work. And I've still gotten copies that look exactly like the wrong example. It almost worked, it like almost completely backfired on me. I've had the same experience. I used to, for one project, show kids, all right, here's an idea of how the structure could be made, but I'm telling you this one's not gonna work. And it was like monkey see, monkey do. They could not get their minds away from the example they saw. At this point, I am careful about what I draw on the board. I find that even some basic drawings of a solution will just really set the class off in one direction or another. It's not easy, but I try to clearly communicate my expectations without giving examples of solutions for most of my projects. Yeah, it's funny you say that with pictures drawn on the board because I've definitely come in after you've been teaching and run right up to the board and said oh no he was drawing you know your kids may have been a day ahead and you were demonstrating how to do something and i'll just get that out of there before a single kid can even see it just because they will lock on so fast and be like, oh that's how we're supposed to do it I'll, I'll remove any example it should be about give them what they need to do the project give them constraints for the project and then tell them what the goal should do or should be like it doesn't have you don't have to tell them 
this is exactly how you do it. Just tell them where the goal is, let them figure out how to get there. And there really shouldn't necessarily be one correct way. There should be like a correct direction they should be heading in, which is what your constraints should be limiting you to. And that's the whole purpose of having good constraints set up. But it shouldn't be, this is how you do it, and this is what the end goal looks like. Yeah, and I think we should clarify that our projects are all design-based projects. We almost never give students a set of instructions to follow. We are creating a outline for students to solve a problem and rules that push them in the correct direction. How should I put this? I would say it contains them more than push. Yeah. So it's, like we, it's like building a fence around a forest, starting them at one side and saying, okay, there's treasure on the other side. You know, <laughs> that's a good way of putting it. You know, but So they're fenced in. like They can't leave the area, but they have to figure out how to get to the other side of the forest. Exactly. And you give them a few tools along the way, like you know, compass, map, or you know, something. You're not just throwing them out in the woods either. You're giving them some tools where they have to kind of put that together and figure it out. Right, and and our you know our projects don't start from thin air. We're building upon concepts that we've talked about in class. Most of our projects will start with a, a more concrete lesson on the technology or skills we're trying to build. I just realized, did we invent escape rooms and not realize it? <laughs> uh, we we should have filed our patent. This is literally an escape room. <laughs> our projects are just escape rooms with like slightly less exciting outcomes. Maybe more exciting. Maybe outcomes. more exciting. I don't know. I don't know. I've never actually but done an escape room. At least you get to take something home when we when That's we true. finish your project. We're better than escape rooms. That should be our motto. <laughs> STEM. Better, better than, than escape, escape rooms. rooms. Hey, that was good. Hey. All right. I I would like to add something. Projects are hard. They're hard to run, and they will throw at you a lot of unexpected stuff, and. I bring this up because I think you have you cannot be afraid of trying projects as a teacher over and over again and getting better and better at them. I think some teachers, including myself a little bit, have this uh, urge to, well, next year I'm going to try something new, something new and cool. Don't be afraid to get good at doing a project. The second, third, fourth time you do it, you'll be better at it. And if you do it enough times, you'll be an expert at it. And it'll be very easy to guide students. And, and really, you'll be able to see those pitfalls before they even come. Yeah, we do like to change projects up from year to year, but we don't change every single project we do. We'll keep, if we do four projects in a year, we'll change one of them and leave the other three the same, just so we can build that experience and really tailor that experience to being more effective for the students, make it a little bit easier on us, and just generally improve it all around. All right, my last tip is your project. So there should be some sort of guiding question to a goal to attain that through getting that objective, students will demonstrate or acquire the knowledge that you're trying to, like whatever the lesson is that you're trying to teach, that question should be the means to get there. And that's gonna be a lot of the motivation too. Uh, in the past, we've done a lot of like silly stuff where we'll make up some real world. Uh, I know in projects, I usually like kids know that I've created a project for our class because you're always the bad guy. 
um, and you know, just fun things like that that'll motivate them. But there should be an essential question that kind of poses the challenge to them and says, okay, this is the whole purpose of why we're doing this. So that's the guiding question. That's the, the driving force behind the whole project that motivates the kids, it engages the kids, something interesting that it could be a little fun, it could be based on the real world, that is the whole thing that kicks us off. And that could be almost the most important part of the whole project to making it function well. Obviously, the most important part of the project is they learn what you're trying to teach them, but to actually make it function, that guiding question is like the starter pistol. It's everybody's lined up, they're ready to go, and you fire it, and that race should, sorry, should get them motivated and kind of launched into the project. So you're talking even outside sort of your academic goals, but uh, you know a little bit of storytelling and stage setting for the project. Yeah, and it, it doesn't even have to be that much of storytelling and stage setting per se. It could be something that's literally just based off of their real life. So you don't have to necessarily make something up. It could be something that relates to them. Like we do at a project where students got to choose the charity to represent to bring more attention to that through graphic design. So they had the opportunity to customize it and make it their own. Or something that's just like kind of a puzzle where they can't really imagine like, oh, how am I going to do this? And it just kind of intrigues them a little bit. Like they're in a tough situation. You have to get out. And this is the way you do it. You know, so yeah, I guess a little stage setting there. But it doesn't have to be that either. It could be, I had, I had a couple of kids today who were done early uh, with a, a computer-aided design assignment. And I literally gave them a problem that I had with organizing headphones in the room. And I said, what do you got? What, what do you think we should do? And they started you know, putting their heads together and running through the problem and asking great questions. They were like, how many headphones do we have? Well, what if we did this? Oh, that won't work because you know some of the headphones have a coil, some of them don't have a coil. There's all it was, it was right. great. So even something that's just mildly related to them, mm -hmm. and not necessarily like complete fantasy or fiction, can really engage the kids, or even more so engage the kids. Right, and I find that if you're trying to get the kids engaged in a some sort of creative problem-solving process. And it's a little bit more open-ended, like you, know, you were doing some enrichment with students who are finished early. It's really good to give them some scaffolding. Just telling uh, at least middle school age students, go do something that interests you, doesn't usually work out. Even if you like, you know, make something in a CAD program that interests you, they kind of just blank when you say that. Uh, giving them a little bit of scaffolding, like saying, well, here's the headphone problem we're having. Could you design something to solve that? Gives them a good starting point, and then from there, they could, cre they could apply their own creativity and interest to it. Let's keep going. Okay. So what's your next? Okay. Well, this is something I see sometimes out in uh, when I visit core classes or if I talk to a teacher who's just trying to find a way to fit a uh, project into their class because they feel like they should or they have to or maybe they just want to spice things up. It's good to remember that projects are not just about demonstrating knowledge, but they can be about synthesis and creation of knowledge as well. A lot of times, uh, especially if I'm out looking at some gen ed project uh, courses doing projects, um, it seems to me, and I, I don't want to paint with a broad brush, I know there are a lot of great projects happening in school, but I've definitely seen projects where what the students are doing is that they are creating a display or in some other way demonstrating something they learned earlier in class or earlier in the course. And there's nothing wrong with that, 
But I think in our project-based learning, we should strive for more. We should strive to really reach that the top tips of Bloom's taxonomy. Have the students truly creating, not just demonstrating. Have them synthesize their knowledge and hopefully learn from the project, not just demonstrate with the project. As I always like to explain, projects, like you said, shouldn't be bolt-on. If anything, it should be replacing mundane, low-level engaging work with a way to synthesize and create and review and revise things that are going to keep you, like you said, at those top three tiers of Bloom's taxonomy. And really, instead of something that's like an extra fun thing, it should be really the meat of what you're doing. That's one of the, it's one of the most effective and efficient ways to teach students. And as a bonus, a lot of times you'll actually reach students that you typically wouldn't by having them read it out of a textbook or do a worksheet or otherwise. Well, that's all we have for this week. Thanks for listening. We've gained a lot of new listeners in our first weeks, so welcome to all of you. If you want to support the podcast, the best thing you could do is give us a rating and review on iTunes. There's a link to our iTunes page at the top of our website, teched.technology. While you're there, you can find out more info about the show, including contact info and links to our social media. Speaking of social media, we'd love to hear your ideas, thoughts, and reactions to what we discussed. Or you can check out our project ideas posted monthly to our website. You can reach out to us on our social media platforms, facebook.com slash techedtechpodcast. That's facebook.com slash techedtechpodcast. Or on Twitter, at techedtechpod. Today's show was created and produced by me, Mike Lasher, and Dan DeLuca. We'll see you in two weeks for our next episode on the maker movement.